courtroom drama. Judges, juries, lawyers, defenses and prosecutions, witnesses, defendants, hearing arguments, presenting evidence, giving testimony, banging gavels. Hollywood seems to tell us that this is really exciting. Doesn't it? They tell us it's very dramatic, very fascinating. But there aren't many scenes that I think would have a bigger disparity or dissimilarity than real life. We enjoy courtroom trials in entertainment. But in real life, most of us are bored to death by them. For example, outside of those of you who are lawyers here, okay, how many of you have ever thought, you know, I've got some free time this weekend. I'm going to go down to the courthouse downtown and just listen to some trials. <laughs> Sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> Recently, I got a letter in the mail with two very ominous words in it. Jury duty. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? Sure, I will do my duty if I'm called upon, but it sure doesn't sound like fun. There's a reason it's called jury duty, it, right? It's a total inconvenience to us in order to, to do this. If courtroom drama, though, were usually exciting, we'd all be volunteering for jury duty. We'd want to be there, be entertaining. Sometimes, though, I, I do admit, trials do, in fact, get interesting. A select number even make the news, headline news. Sometimes... The drama is real. The scenes are tense. The trials are fascinating. And that's why Hollywood and other entertainment has grabbed onto that. It sometimes is. It's fascinating. I believe this is the case with one of the rare trial scenes we see in the Bible. As Jesus Christ found himself in somewhat of a courtroom on trial. Unlike your bulletin says, it's not on trail, it's on trial. So you're welcome to pull your notes out if you want to take notes, but I invite you now to, more importantly, take your Bibles, open them up with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, and we'll be at the very end of the chapter, starting in verse 63. So if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, that's on page 883. 883, Luke chapter 22. We're going to go here because underneath the judicial and legal proceedings before Jesus' death was some intense drama. The, the fate of the world hung in the balance on that dreadful morning long ago. And the fate of our souls may hang in the balance this morning as we read it together. Let's pray that God's Spirit would speak to each one of us today. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I do pray that as we come to your word, we would have open hearts to receive from you, that we would have soft hearts and that our eyes would see your truth in these words. I pray that more than anything, we would see you today. We'd see the Lord Jesus and his love for us, his grace for us, and that it would blow us away, astonish us once again this morning, God. I pray that your spirit would be working on each one of our hearts as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we draw nearer to the cross and the end of Luke, things are getting pretty heavy. 
Some of you have been here the whole way. You followed along from the beginning of the stages of Luke, and you've seen Jesus' whole life up to this point. And if you've been with us really recently, you know that Jerusalem has been in a very celebratory mood, celebrating the Passover together, the Feast of the Passover. But the city was largely unaware of what had gone on on this one night, in the night hours, in secret. We know things for the disciples. Jesus' disciples were getting quite sober and scary. For Jesus, things were getting pretty painful, torturous, literally. In a matter of several hours, we've seen Jesus go through the agony of Gethsemane and then abandonment and betrayal and arrest and denial. And things were only going to get worse. Last time we were in this story together, we looked in depth at Peter's denial, among other things. And that part of the story ended this way. In Luke 22, verse 61, it said, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. This is in the midst of his denial. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Then it's as if Luke said, Meanwhile, back to Jesus. But when we return to Jesus, it's not a pretty picture at all. Could have been rated R. Look in verse 63 with me. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So we see here Jesus was being held as a prisoner, awaiting his trial. And while they waited, the guards decided to have some fun at his expense. We don't really know anything about these guys, but they clearly had something against Jesus as they just let him have it insulting him and taunting him and torturing him mercilessly. Now, before we see what Luke was trying to show us through these verses, I need to stop and explain something to you, okay? So take a little commercial break. Do you know what irony is? I don't think most of us actually do. Heard the word, we don't really know. It's taken me years to actually try to figure out what irony is, and I, I don't even know if I even have a, a really firm grasp on it still. In fact, I have one very appropriate meme for us this morning. Some of you will get the inside joke there. <laughs> I don't think many of us actually know what irony means. Contrary to popular opinion and usage, irony does not mean coincidence. Okay? Irony does not mean coincidence. Alanis Morissette has no idea what irony actually is. Okay? Rain on your wedding day is not irony, it's coincidence. Okay? Something is ironic. Something is ironic if it's the exact opposite of what you would expect in a situation. Okay? Or if you use words to describe something, but you actually mean something opposite. So, for instance, a fire station on fire is ironic. Okay, that's irony. Or when we tell performers right before they go and perform something, break a leg. We actually mean good luck. It's, it's 
irony. George Carlin says, irony is a state of affairs that is the reverse of what was to be expected, the result, a result opposite to and in mockery of the appropriate result. For instance, if a diabetic on his way to buy insulin is killed by a runaway truck, he is the victim of an accident. If the truck was delivering sugar, he is the victim of an oddly poetic coincidence. But if the truck was delivering insulin, ah, then he is the victim of an irony. Okay, starting to understand that, what irony actually is. On the more serious side of irony, theologian Don Carson, who we're going to meet in April, says this about irony. It says, irony expresses meaning by using words that normally mean the opposite of what is actually being said. But irony has the potential, especially in narrative, for bringing a situation into sharp focus. Very often, it is the irony in the narrative that enables hearers and readers to see what is really going on. Irony provides a dimension of depth and color that would otherwise be missing. Now, some of you are thinking, I thought I was going to church, not English class. <laughs> but I, I wanted to briefly explain irony because our story today is chock full of it. Totally full of irony. Throughout today's message, I'm going to point out several different instances and several different cases of irony that I believe Luke purposely used to describe the situation because so much of what happened to Jesus was heavily ironic. Okay? Many things happened to Jesus that were the exact opposite of what, of what should have been expected. We've already seen some of this. If you've been with us since Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, the boundless Son of Man bound. Okay, the unrestrainable God restrained. That's irony. The most innocent man ever being dragged off like a guilty criminal. That's tragic irony. But Jesus' suffering was only just beginning with his betrayal and arrest and denial. And as we've seen in the first verses today, we see yet another brutal part of his suffering. But as Luke records this account about Jesus' suffering, he was very creative in the way he did so. Because with each aspect of his suffering, I believe Luke also tried to reveal something of who Jesus was. So, we see aspects of Jesus' suffering, but right alongside it, we also see aspects of Jesus' identity. Here's the first point you'll see today. That is, Jesus was mocked and beaten as a prophet. Okay? Because of his love, Jesus allowed himself to be mocked and beaten like a shunned prophet. Jesus was mocked and beaten as a prophet. Read with me again in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So three things were done to Jesus here. He was mocked, he was beaten, and he was blasphemed. It's verbal abuse, physical abuse, and spiritual abuse. We're going to focus on the first two now, and we're going to come back to the third in a bit. But can you 
imagine, even picture this scene. It's horrific. Things like this can make us squirm. We don't want to think about it too deeply. But in order to truly understand Jesus' love, we must understand what he went through for us. So I encourage you to actually think about this, to imagine it. Since Jesus stood there and his hands bound, the guards were given free reign over him. Verse 63 says they both mocked and beat him concurrently at the same time, back and forth. For an example, they decided to play this cruel game meant to make a mockery of Jesus' power. Jesus was known as this powerful miracle worker, but he sure didn't look very powerful in this moment. So they put his powers to the test, blindfolding him to to cover his eyes so he couldn't see, and then they pranced around him, taking turns striking him. Maybe with their hands, maybe with clubs or other weapons, whatever they had. But if you imagine this, Jesus would have had no idea where the next blow was coming from. He had no idea what to protect next. Where the next blow was coming. His, if you think about it, his face was probably slapped, and punched, bloodied. He likely had black eyes, maybe missing teeth. A broken nose, a throbbing migraine, I'm sure. And that's just his head. But the rest of his body bruises, broken ribs, worse. Then, literally adding insult to injury, the guards made vile fun of Jesus. And it says, they also blindfolded him and kept asking, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming. Now, true prophets acted as messengers from God, and they were given supernatural knowledge. Unfortunately, true prophets were also often tragic characters. You know any of the prophets from the Old Testament? You know they are tragic, rejected by those that they were sent to, frequently beaten and even killed, like Jesus here. The guards thought in this night, surely if Jesus was a prophet, if he really was a prophet sent from God to us, then he would know certain things. He'd have this supernatural knowledge. He'd know things like who it was who struck him right then. So, Let's test this out. They blindfold him. Ha! Who struck you then? Who was that? Prophesy! Prophesy for us. Over and over again. From all appearances, this torture went on for a while. Cowardly, repulsive, nauseating. Strikingly, though, Luke doesn't record Jesus making any response to his abusers. He just took it. 
he could have broken his bonds in an instant and just beat up his abusers like Jack Bauer would. He, more than that, if you know Jesus' power, he could have instantly made them paralyzed or mute, unable to lift a finger against him. He could have stopped each one of those guards' hearts from beating ever again. But he didn't. Instead, he restrained his power and neither prophesied nor fought back. Sometimes the greatest power and strength can be seen in restraint. We see that in Jesus here. One ironic part of this situation was that the only one the one who was blindfolded was the only one there who could really see. The other ironic part of this situation is that as the guards taunted him with cries of prophesy, this whole situation was ironically a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus himself had prophesied back in Luke 18 that he would be mocked and shamefully treated. And centuries before that, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied and declared that the coming Savior would be stricken and smitten and afflicted. He would be wounded and crushed. Like a sheep before his shearers is silent, he would not open his mouth. Prophesy! But he had already prophesied. And now those prophecies were coming true. The amazing part of this situation is that he went through all of this for us sinners. As the passage in Isaiah says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds... We are healed. We might not have ever beaten Christ up like this or brutally mocked him like this, but we have to see that our sins are what put him in this place in the first place. We were the ones who deserved to be beaten as a punishment. We were the ones who deserved to be made a mockery of, to be shamed. But he was instead. Philip Riken says, Every wounding blow and every taunting word was an expression of his love for lost sinners. I hope you're blown away by that. Because that is astounding love. For someone to go through that for you, for me. You might think, well, why were these sufferings, these, this torture before his death actually necessary? I mean, why couldn't Jesus just have died? Why couldn't he have just been killed? Why go through all this torture? 
And it's true that for our redemption, that Jesus' death was all that was necessary. But his other sufferings played a key role in God's bigger picture. See, he not only had to fulfill all righteousness, but he had to fulfill all suffering. He had to go through this so that he could sympathize and empathize with us as our Savior, empathize with us in our own sufferings. And now, he stands as a perfect example of how to stand firm in our own trials or persecution or suffering. James 5.10 says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Or, better yet, take the prophet, the Lord himself. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And therein, why is the secret to endurance in suffering? Entrusting yourself to God. Entrusting yourself to God, knowing that His will is best. Knowing that He will get us through that. So next time you're suffering in any way, or you think you're suffering, remember Jesus. Remember his suffering and stand firm because as you remember that, you remember his love for you. You remember that he loves for you even in your situation. You remember that he cares for you. Trust him. Now, if you're wondering why Jesus was left alone with these abusive guards for a while, it's probably not that the religious leaders were sleeping. They were most likely stalling, stalling for time. See, Jewish law demanded that, that official cases had to be tried in the daytime hours. They had to be tried in the daytime. So in order to give the appearance of legitimacy to their actions, their really treacherous activities, they waited until daytime came in order to, have to conduct a formal trial against Jesus. So they had some time to burn. And verse 66 says, When day came, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. So this refers to the Jewish ruling body of leaders, the Sanhedrin. Of course, we all know that Rome ruled the area. So Sanhedrin only had a, a, some limited powers. But it was made up of priests, scribes, other respected elders in the area. And they acted kind of like a miniature parliament, a local parliament. For Palestine, And together, on this day, they would vote like a jury to decide whether or not Jesus was guilty. And what we'll see in the following few verses is this point, that Jesus was interrogated and disbelieved as the Christ. He was questioned and grilled and ultimately disbelieved, even though he was the Messiah. Jesus was interrogated and disbelieved as the the Christ. The, the religious leaders really had no good accusations, no good charges to bring against Jesus. They had arrested him, 
They hadn't read him his rights. They, we know that he hadn't incited a rebellion. He wasn't a violent man. He, hadn't, he didn't break any laws. So they decided, as they bring him to trial, that they would focus on the one thing, that there was only one thing they could focus on, that is who he claimed to be. So that's what we have to focus on. Because if we can get Jesus to admit that he's something or claim that he's something that we believe he's not, then we could brand him as a criminal. We could brand him as a treacherous and as dangerous, as, as rebellious, that one day he's going to lead a rebellion against Rome, and so on and so forth. Therefore, Jesus' trial centered around his identity, as we'll see. And the first thing we see the council doing here is questioning Jesus directly, interrogating him. More like an interrogation than a trial, really. It says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now, we know the other witnesses they called couldn't bring much of a case against him. So they called Jesus to the stand to bear witness about himself. You know how in those courtroom dramas we were talking about, like maybe think back Perry Mason or Matlock or Law and Order, more so these days, how dramatic it is when the person on trial, right after a long bunch of questioning, a bunch of different witnesses, one of the lawyers stands up and calls the person on trial, the defendant, to the stand. How dramatic it is. I, I call Mr. John Smith to the sand. Dun, dun, dun. Commercial break. <laughs> Tim Keller says this, There's nothing more dramatic than to be on trial for your life and no more dramatic moment in a trial than when the defendant is called to testify on the witness stand. And there's never been a more dramatic and shocking testimony given on a witness stand than the one Jesus Christ gave during his trial. Okay, counsel comes, they make a demand of Jesus, which at first might sound reasonable. They said, if you are the Christ, in verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. The Christ refers to the long-awaited deliverer that Israel had anticipated for centuries now. It's, the, it's not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title, and it's actually the Greek form of the Hebrew title of Messiah. The Messiah, whom God had promised would come one day to save his people. So, the Sanhedrin asked Jesus, why don't you just tell us whether or not you're the Messiah? Just spill the beans. But Jesus knew that their question was not entirely forthright. He knew their hearts. So look how he answered him, answered them. He says, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So they wanted Christ to, or Jesus to claim that he was the Christ in order to incriminate himself in, in, in front of the court. See, it was prophesied that the Messiah would become king of Israel one day. This is what the prophets talked about. So they thought if they could get Jesus to openly say he was the Messiah, that he intended to become king of Israel, that they could level an accusation against him that he was a zealot. He was a, a rabble-rouser, a usurper, that he wanted to organize a coup to overthrow Rome one day. Now, how do you think Rome would take that kind of accusation? 
This is what they were trying to trap him in. Jesus knew that this is what they're after, so he didn't answer them plainly. It's like he said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. If I tell you, you will not believe. So notice, he didn't legally incriminate himself. But this was a yes if I've ever heard one. After all, if he answered, no, I'm not the Christ, they would have believed him. Right? So the only answer that they wouldn't believe is, yes, I am the Christ. If I tell you, you will not believe. Really, there shouldn't have been any doubt in anyone's mind by this point of who Jesus was. Angels had announced Jesus' birth as saying the Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. Every aspect of Jesus' life leading up to this had fulfilled multiple messianic prophecies. When Jesus asked his disciple Peter who he was, who he thought he was, Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And Jesus seemed to readily affirm that assertion. Beyond this, his teaching day after day had obviously had heavenly authority and power. And then his miracles that he did all the time readily attested to his identity and his lordship and his power. It should have been obvious to everyone that Jesus was special. And and far more than just special. It should have been obvious that he was sent from God. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. But the Jewish leaders were blinded by jealousy and pride or anger. So they wouldn't have believed Jesus even if he had told them to their faces, I am. They're running a trial. They didn't need evidence. They had plenty of evidence. Plenty of witnesses. Plenty of testimonies. Plenty of evidence. They were just rejecting the evidence they already had. I think this is often, frequently, the case for anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus today. They don't need more evidence. The problem isn't a lack of evidence, but a refusal to accept the evidence that is already there. Jesus knew that they never believe. He further knew that if he turned the question around and asked them, well, who do you think I am? They never answer that. So he means in verse 68, and if I ask you, you will not answer. He knew from experience that they did not like answering his questions very much. They had already refused to answer multiple questions of his. We've seen some of them in Luke already. So they wouldn't answer him. But then, Jesus' testimony gets taken up another notch. Or two. Or ten. (laughs) He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Verse 69. But, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, Jesus might as well have admitted he was the Messiah in verse 67. In verse 69, he left no doubt at all. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
Now, if you don't see this right away, let me explain. The Son of Man was Jesus' by far favorite title for himself, which had huge messianic overtones. Every time he used that title, everyone around him would have immediately recalled another prophecy from ancient days when, when Daniel... The prophet Daniel, Daniel 7, prophesied he saw a vision of someone coming from heaven down to earth, someone who was called the Son of Man, to whom was given glory and a kingdom. And people from all over the world came and worshipped him and served him for eternity. Every time Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he claimed to be that man. The Messiah, sent from heaven by God to earth to rule and judge and reign. Every time he used that title. And when Jesus was before the council here, he basically quoted directly from Daniel, as well as from another prophecy in Psalm 110, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, in essence, what Jesus was saying is that he was the Christ, God's anointed one, and he would in the very near future be exalted back to heaven's throne. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And we know this would happen quite soon as he was resurrected and then as he was ascended in glory back into heaven. Now think about this scene. This would have been, this would have seemed like an outrageous prophecy, considering how powerless Jesus looked at that moment. Bound and battered and bloody. And notice the huge irony. As Tim Keller says, by his choice of text, the prophecies he's talking about. Jesus is deliberately forcing us to see the paradox. There has been an enormous reversal. He is the judge over the entire world being judged by the world. Talk about ironic. As he was being judged, he was claiming the right to judge. And one day, he will judge all those who were judging him then. And we need to realize that we often attempt to sit as judges over God. We think we can decide whether or not God exists. We think we can decide what God is really like. Whether We think we can decide whether he is holy or loving or wrathful or just or so on and, and so forth. So many people do this when they say, I can't believe in a God who would or who is fill in the blank. Further, we think we can come to God on our own terms. However we want to. We think well, we just need mental assent or partial repentance or we just need to say a little prayer. Or we think we can do enough good works or we can be a good enough person 
to please him. We've got to stop acting like the judge and jury over God. God is our judge. God is our judge. And he's already spoken to us to tell us who he is. To tell us how to come to him. He is the creator and the savior. He is the absolute Lord. He is the only God. He is holy and loving and wrathful and kind and just and merciful. We cannot come to Him on our own terms. We must come to Him on His terms. We can never be good enough. We can never do enough good things. We are all desperate sinners. But the good news is that Jesus came to earth to save sinners. Like you and me. He came to give us grace by suffering and being condemned and dying in our place. And by rising again in glory as the conquering Christ who demands our worship. If you're still resisting Jesus in your heart today, I urge you to surrender to him. Give up the fight. Stop trying to judge whether or not he is worthy of you following him. Take him at his word. He is who he said he was. Don't be like the the mob here and interrogate him or disbelieve him. We need to believe him, to trust him, to leave our sins behind. Come to him today. His arms are open. He's mighty to save. I'd be happy to speak with you later about how you can do this, how you can put your trust in Jesus, the Christ. He's worthy of all of our lives. When Jesus made this bold prophecy... He was really implying that he was more than just the Christ. It was like he said, I am the Messiah, I am the Messiah as the Son of Man, and more. Okay? And the religious leaders who were judging him knew it. They knew what he meant. They knew that the Son of Man was a title of humanity that pointed to his deity. That's why they asked him a follow-up question to clarify what he meant. Look in verse 70. So, they all said, Are you the Son of God then? In other words, they couldn't believe their ears. They had just gotten Jesus to imply that he was the Christ, just like they wanted him to imply. But now, what he was saying sounded even more incriminating than that. So, are, so they all said, Are you the Son of God then? Do you really mean what we think you meant to mean? And the answer is yes. He absolutely intended to imply that. Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Now it might sound like Jesus was evading a straightforward answer again here, but he wasn't. This statement was an affirmation of what they asked. In other translations, he simply says, Yes, I am. Or, You are right 
in saying that I am. Yes, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And yes, Jesus really was the Son of God. Again, there should have been no doubt. Based on his miracles, his works, his words, everything leading up to this point. Do you remember Jesus' baptism? Or maybe the the scene on the Mount of Transfiguration where God the Father spoke out of heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, or this is my Son. Listen to Him. But some doubted. Some disbelieved. And that's why Jesus was on trial on this day. But there's something interesting going on here. Something surprising, and you could say ironic even. The council put Jesus on trial, and they convicted him of claiming to be God. But I think this trial actually convicted Jesus of being God. I think I believe Luke wanted us to really see Jesus' deity here. And this is our final point today, that Jesus was tried and convicted as God. Jesus was tried. Jesus went on trial. The jury convicted him of claiming to be God, but through this trial, Jesus was revealing himself as the divine Son of God, God himself. Luke makes a point in drawing out. You've seen this probably already. He draws out the different titles of Jesus in this passage. There's a prophet, the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and there's an escalation here. He is a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah, but he's not just the Messiah. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man, but he's not just the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. Now you might think, as you hear this, that the title Son of God doesn't necessarily equal God himself. You might even think that it sounds like Jesus was making a distinction between God and the Son of God here. And I might have agreed with you except for one major piece of evidence. And that is how everyone around Jesus reacted to his claim. Look with me. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, Luke seems to really underplay this moment. Basically, right then, everyone lost their minds. In Mark's gospel, Mark describes the scene this way. It says, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And then the trial deteriorated into a riot, and people began beating on Jesus again. These people fully knew what Jesus meant when he said he was the Son of God. By claiming to be the Son of Man and the Son of God, Jesus was claiming the power and honor and authority of God himself. And they thought, blasphemy! Blasphemy. A blasphemy was a particular form of slander, which insulted God. 
Okay, slander, blasphemy is directly against God. It insults God. Usually, people do this by claiming attributes of God or claiming to be God when they're not. So, if I stood up here today and said, I am God, or we are gods, that would be total blasphemy. Okay? Now, remember, back in verse 65, Luke told us that the guards were blaspheming Jesus. Now, at the end of his trial, Jesus is being accused of blasphemy. That's not a coincidence. Luke wants us to notice this. He wants us to ask, who is the real blasphemer here? Jesus or those opposed to Jesus? Remember, Blasphemy is against God. Okay, only God can be blasphemed. But here Luke makes the point that Jesus was blasphemed. Notice the irony once again. That the one who was blasphemed is now accused of blasphemy. This is not just ironic. This is impossible. It's absurd. God can't blaspheme himself. Yet God was put on trial and convicted of claiming to be God. And so this irrational, unreasonable, foolish, ridiculous trial was brought to a conclusion. And the council decided to condemn Jesus as deserving of death. Now, notice that they didn't actually condemn him to death. They weren't allowed to do that. Rome was the only one allowed to enforce the death penalty. And that's why in the next passage, they're going to drag him off to the Roman governor, Pilate, to get his stamp of approval. But in Jewish thought, blasphemy was punishable by death. So the jury reached their decision. Jesus deserved to die. Now, I know I phrased the, the three points I gave you today in a, a little bit of an awkward way. So Jesus was mocked and beaten as a prophet, and he was interrogated and disbelieved as the Christ, and he was tried and convicted as God, even though those were, that were doing those things to him didn't believe that he was a prophet or that he was the Christ or that he was God. But here's the funny thing. Jesus was basically pleading guilty. He played into their accusations. And that's because he was guilty as charged. And yet he was innocent of all wrongdoing. Yet another irony for you. The innocent prisoner condemned as guilty. He was guilty of claiming to be a prophet and Christ and God because he was all of the above. And yet he was totally, 100% innocent of any crime. Philip Ryken points out, if only these men... Actually, back up for a second. The trial ends. You noticed what they said. This is the high priest says, Then they said, 
What further testimony do we need? We have all heard it from his own lips, and he, they tore his clothes. And Philip Reichen says about this, if only these men had answered their own question a different way, they could have been saved. Consider carefully what they said, because when Luke put their words in his gospel, he was hoping we would catch their irony. Indeed, he was hoping that we would answer this question the right way instead of the wrong way. What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So today, what further testimony do we need? What further testimony do we need? We must hear this account of Jesus' final days and come to our own conclusions. Is he or isn't he? Who is Jesus? Do you agree with Jesus or do you agree with the jury? The fact remains. He was the greatest prophet. He was the Christ. He was the Son of Man. And he was the Son of God. And thus, he demands our entire allegiance, our total surrender, and all of our worship. We must decide. But remember, we're not the judge or jury. God is. And he's already spoken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read of Jesus going through the suffering for us, may our hearts once again be amazed at what he went through for us. May our lives be changed. May we be absolutely convinced in our minds of what Jesus claimed, that he is the prophet, he is the Christ, he is the Son of Man, he is the Son of God. For you are worthy. Change us, we pray. May we trust you today. In Jesus' name, amen.